A deeper look, exploring what works and what doesn't in development and the changes we can make together to turn ideas into action. I'm Patrick Fine, I'm the CEO of FHI360 and I'm delighted to be here today with Ben Ramalingam who is a researcher at the Institute for Development Studies at the University of Sussex. He's the author of Aid on the Edge of Chaos, and he is one of the cutting-edge thinkers about international development and foreign assistance today. One of the things I'm interested in talking to you about is how do we take the ideas that you've advocated for taking a more systems approach, for taking advantage of adaptive systems research work and methods and apply it in real world settings. Often we do things because it's the best available option to us. For example, one of the key tensions that I've experienced in designing and implementing programs is the trade-off between the time it takes to understand the context, to get local buy-in, to build trust, build the kind of relationships where you can really have not just ownership, but joint partnership in designing and carrying out a program, and the pressure for quick results. How do you look at that tension, and how do you reconcile those two competing demands? First of all, I think there's a lot which is done in the name of international development as the best available option. And sometimes it is, and sometimes it isn't. What I question is the automatic knee-jerk application of some of these ways of doing things without enough attention being paid to interrogating exactly why we're doing it. Precisely because of the urgency. We know that the problem is complex. We know that there are Um, multiple interdependencies. We know that it doesn't always work. We know that it can be suboptimal in certain situations, but we've got the pressure to get things out the door. That's how we're judged, that's how we're incentivized. Well, I think a lot of things, because of that urgency, end up getting delivered, which are unsustainable, which don't necessarily have meaning to the people that we're supposed to be delivering it to. And what ends up happening is, because of the urgency that we face, we end up defining the development problem over here and solving it using our own cultural norms and ideas of what's needed, our own principles, our own thinking. Whereas real development on the ground actually is happening in a completely disconnected way. Donors set the parameters, implementing organisations say yes we can deliver that, no one consults the community, the implementation organisation gets the money then goes to the community and says okay this is what we're going to be doing, the community says hang on we didn't ask for that, we didn't want it. And there's so many different examples. So. I guess it's the question of whose urgency counts. Is it the urgency of the aid agency that wants to get money out the door, or money in the door? Is it the urgency of the community that wants to see change happen? I think all too often we trade off what we know we can deliver, and we don't do that consultative part. So the largest polio programme that's been delivered anywhere in the recent years has been delivered in Somalia. It involved community engagement, the use of mobile phones, use of vaccinations for the children. It took a long time of engagement by UN agencies with the communities to build up trust. That programme happened because of the pre-existing relationships of trust, pre-existing 
dynamics, the sense of the community actually owned this and they had a sense of how they were going to do it. And I think we can't short-circuit that process because of urgency. I agree with that. And it speaks to integration as well. So I wonder if there's a way that development practitioners and researchers could advocate for a policy reform that would say even in urgent situations, can we design programs so that there is a period of time built in as an essential part of doing business for building the relationships, putting in place the program infrastructure and systems, and then starting off, instead of saying, we're giving you money in January and by March, we want to see the program in full flight. So we're financing this program in January, and within nine months or 12 months, we want you to put in place the social and the technical infrastructure, including the relationships and the community and trust building to then deliver on the program. I haven't seen many donors willing to do that. I think it's a practice that could be applied much more broadly than it is, mm. but it would require a policy reform or a change of mentality on the part of many of the key stakeholders. So take Tesco's moving into China. Retail operations, they know what they're doing. So they need to understand the context. They need to understand the market. They need to understand how they would position themselves. They need to understand kind of cultural dynamics. I guess how long Tesco spent thinking through that set of questions? Maybe three years. Three years. If we spend six months in a conflict and fragile affected state thinking through the kind of issue we were just talking about, we would be accused of dragging after. Absolutely. But there's something really fundamental there, where we're dealing with some of the most ambiguous, ill-defined, complex, challenging, meaningful questions facing humanity. But we're not doing it. We're not, in a way, honouring those problems. We're talking about learning from the private sector. We're talking about a very narrow set of the private sector, driven by efficiency, value for money. It's not 21st century business leadership. When we talk about learning from the private sector, there is this tendency to pick and choose and not to really look at their operating models and what goes into them, how long a company will spend doing research around markets, around the regulatory environment, around the culture and the habits of the consumers that they're trying to reach or the, what would be equivalent to us in terms of participatory community outreach mm -hmm. to really understand what they're getting into and where they can either add value or extract value to make a profit. And the interesting thing that people say that would be a waste of money, waste of time, but actually, I would say that a lot of what we end up spending ends up being suboptimal because we don't make those investments. I agree. So we throw bad money after good. The counter to that is we don't always have to spend three years doing it if we find the right national or local partnership. It doesn't always have to be us. I think that one of the drivers that differentiates our practice from, say, a commercial practice that does put in the time to really understand the context and build out their strategic plans, identify the right personnel who can achieve the objectives that they want to achieve, is that they're not under the same kind of political pressure that exists between governments or between communities and 
international development partners. Mm-hmm. Now, commercial companies are under pressure from their shareholders, but there seems to be a recognition that they don't want to make hasty investments. They want the investments to be well thought out, and they're willing to include or pay the transaction costs. They, they see the transaction costs in understanding the situation, doing the strategic planning, doing the market surveys, building the relationships as part of the cost of doing business. Whereas in our sector, in international development, those transaction costs are undervalued. Spending resources on that planning phase and setup phase is somehow cheating the population from the resources which should be going to the direct service. I mean, part of it has to come back to the political cycle where leaders are very sensitive to it and they want to show that during their mandate they are doing something good for the country, that Mm -hmm. they're delivering to their constituents, that they're achieving real solid results. And then that leads to the shortcutting or the lack of patience Okay. But, but this is where the private sector piece kind of comes back quite nicely and I think again is an argument that we need to be making much more proactively. There are certain areas where governments are able to take on risk, are able to take on experimentation, are willing to make the argument despite the political cycles that might exist that this is a 10-year programme, we're going to defeat cancer in 10 years, right. so we're able to elevate certain issues beyond that political cycle and say it's too important for politics. And we're able to invest on an understanding that actually we'll get some wins, we'll get some losers, and the public is expected to appreciate that. However, with development aid, we've never tried to make that argument. There's always been this assumption that it's a known endeavour, we deliver what we're going to. I think part of that is a mentality that sees the development assistance as a kind of global philanthropy. And so ways of looking at resource utilization and programming falls within the paradigm of philanthropic giving, Mm -hmm. where what you're talking about is a completely different paradigm, which is a paradigm of investment, social investment, Mm -hmm. as opposed to philanthropic giving. And it would seem to me that if we, as members of the development community do a better job of showing how these are investments in the future, not only of the communities that we're working with, but a shared future, that we might be able to shift that mentality so that the kind of vision that you're articulating could become possible. We're talking about shifting the model. It's not just about philanthropy. It's not just about delivery. We're talking about creating public-private partnerships that deliver simultaneously value for the poorest, deliver profits, deliver benefits for the government, and build up our own sense of political, international capital. Well, or global stability in in simple terms. When you're talking about that kind of investment, I just don't think that we are being visionary enough. There's this idea that implementing organisations in particular have got locked into a kind of Faustian bargain with donors. Donors say, this is what we're interested in, this is what we're willing to fund, send us proposals. We started off with our ambitions to change the world, but actually we've now moved towards ambitions of growth and development, and we try and balance those development ambitions with our ambitions to change the world. We accept the status quo that they create. We don't seek to disrupt things too much, because we know that 
we will grow in predictable ways if we do what the donors right, tell right, us. Right. And then when things don't go the way that we want to, we can essentially turn around and say, well, the donor doesn't let us do it. But we're supposed to be activists for social, economic, political transformation. If we cannot do that in the context of the rela fundamental relationship that guides our day-to-day behaviour at the ones with our donors, if we cannot set the new terms of the debate, if we cannot seek to change the way in which they see and we perceive development, what chance do we have of doing it in developing countries? I see these as balancing acts. And certainly in our organization, we struggle with uh, those balances. Our tagline is the science of improving lives. So we, we're serious about really trying to take scientific approaches to the work we do. But we are a large, complex, global enterprise. And our business model is a competitive business model. Our funding is not from charitable sources. It's from competing for uh, contracts and other awards from governments, from corporations, from foundations. So that leads us to two sort of lines of action that we have to constantly be looking at and balancing. One is our social performance. So are we adding value in the countries, in the communities, in the institutions where we're working? And does the work that we're doing contribute to that mission of the organization of improving lives in lasting ways? That's the most important thing to the organization. But we can't do that unless we also have strong business performance. And strong business performance means that we win new business, that we manage the finances effectively, we're good stewards of the resources, that we can innovate, and we, we're more competitive. Again, I think it becomes an issue of craftsmanship to see how do you meld these two together so that they're not in conflict with each other. And I think in this organization, we almost always will come down on the side of social performance because that's where our hearts are. But how do you get these two things to be in synergy with each other? So the delivery on social performance is enhancing your business performance, and good business performance is enhancing your social performance. And I think, how does that then play out in the context of integrated development? So as the world becomes more complex and more interrelated, and as you've got these big shifts, demographic, shifts, technological shifts, economic shifts, that the kind of solutions that are required are ones that take that into account. And you've got to take a, a more holistic approach to it, which leads you into an integrated approach. So that's on the social performance side. And if you can do that, then you're a better partner to donors mm. or to governments. And so you become more competitive. There's a market element where if you can deliver a more effective solution, then your partnership is going to be more in demand. And that those more effective solutions, in many cases, require us to think about doing business differently hmm. and doing it in more integrated ways. Not in every case. There are for sure cases where a vertical approach may be the best approach to accomplish a specific 
objective that a government or a community or an institution has. And so we're not opposed to that. We're just saying when we look at the way the world is changing and the direction that things are going, we can see that we need to be more intentional about taking a people-centered approach and about looking at what are the elements that fit together to get longer lasting, more effective results. For me, one of the things about integrated development is it's it, particularly if we're not if we're seeing it as a fundamental thing, not just a cosmetic thing. They run a program which is health and education, they're doing health and education at the same time. It's not actually a genuinely integrated program. They're coordinated with each other. And then you've got a genuine integration where health and education are being kind of woven into each other, where where you can't actually pull one piece of the program apart and say right. that's health and that's education because they're all contributing to a grander purpose. So I think a lot of what we're doing in the name of integrated development is in that kind of let's get the silos working. The reason why it's relatively simpler is that we don't have to disrupt the market, we don't have to tell donors anything that they don't want to hear. But when mm -hmm. we're talking about genuine integrated development, we, we may have to disrupt things a little bit. It's not just about doing stuff better, it's about creating new pools of value which may not have existed previously. I think if we're going to make that kind of integrated development, then we're going to have to be disruptive. How do you see that disruption manifesting itself? I think it needs us to reframe the nature of the relationship that we have with funding organisations, with supporting organisations, to essentially see it less as a supply chain that takes resources from the West, organises it into programmes which then delivers goods and services into developing countries, and essentially upends that supply chain and says there are resources from the West but they can equally be resources from developing countries uh -huh. themselves. We're talking about pooled value and we need to be uh, more transparent about the way in which we're going to generate this value and be really transparent about the benefits it's getting in terms of security, in terms of American or UK business interests, in terms of domestic oh, business, right. here are our interests, here are your yeah. interests. This is, and I think that will enable us to achieve, especially now we're talking about better cooperation between public, private, civil society. Transparency and hard negotiations is what's going to get us there. You know, whenever public-private partnerships work, it's because we put all the interests on the table and say, this is what I need, this is what I want. You don't define the solutions by essentially doing what donors want. You get there through hard negotiation. I don't think we've got those skills. I think that it's less an issue of skills and more an issue of unwillingness to have those hard-nosed negotiations. Mm -hmm. Increasingly, national governments are saying, we don't want a UN appeal when there's a disaster. We don't want to go down that route. Instead, what we're going to do is we're going to publish a shopping list. And you come to us direct. Right, and if you want to help us, help us. And Indonesia, Mozambique, yeah. India, the Philippines recently said, we don't want, we're never going to make a UN appeal again in the way that uh -huh. we're going to do what China does. Uh -huh. We're never going to go down that standard route of humanitarian... Because we just give up too much control. And, and, and the way in which the aid community has started referring to these countries is belligerent. Whereas, uh -huh. to me, that's taking ownership. And the aid system in the future is going to be much more around those open, transparent conversations. I, I, I completely agree with you. And I think that it's driven in part by just the growing capacity around the world, in the global system, in countries around the world. Mm. So people, they have the capacity to manage those affairs and they're ready to manage them. I have a question for you to shift a little bit, which is around the notion of evidence-based solutions. So 
if there's any big movement in international development, this is push for evidence-based solutions and approaches. I don't know if it's danger or risk that in the whole movement for evidence-based solutions and finding what works, that that's just another way for coming up with recipes that we will uncritically apply. Yeah, absolutely. So, <laughs> so I think that the movement towards a greater evidence-based focus is part of a general movement in public policy towards evidence-based work. But it's also towards the idea that we're getting more development funding now and there needs to be some sense of accountability. And that accountability has to be to the donor. But the methodological tools and approaches which are being put forward, the ones that are most prominent are the ones that reinforce a certain kind of external donor experiments to see mm-hmm. what is going to work and finds the solution and randomised control trials being the kind of perfect example. Right. Now I've got no problem with randomised control trials. There's certain kinds of programmes that they're very good for. The majority of what we do, they don't work for. They can tell you very good information, very good data about what actually happened as a result of a planned it, intervention. But it can, cannot tell you why it happened or how it happened, or what the wider factors are. You decide to apply microfinance for women in the Congo, it worked. That doesn't mean microfinance is going to work in every other setting. Because they're complex social programs and context change. Absolutely. But the desire to do that is because what works, what doesn't, is a more convenient way for funders, for donors, for program managers to actually set, to make decisions about how to deal with complex development realities. And I think even though the statistical tools are flawed, somehow there's this illusion that they are neutral, they tell us the truth in many, many settings. The other thing with randomised controlled trials is when they're applied in development settings, most of them are in developing countries. There aren't that many RCTs here in the US or the UK. Or in on the, social programs, social, that's right. On the whole, there's something about rich people applying experimental methods to poor people. <laughs> but that is not to say they are not useful. But there, there is no gold standard when it comes to evaluation. But I think the broader evidence-based policy movement is actually really important. I do think we need better evidence. I think it needs to be evidence not necessarily of what works, but what is possible, what is feasible, how are things unfolding, what, how can we a broad set of evidence. I do have a concern that in our zeal to use evidence-based approaches and to infuse them with a kind of authority that they may not always merit, that we will just recreate what you've described as best practice-itis, of saying, well, it worked in Uganda, so therefore let's do the exact same thing in Tanzania four years later. And if it doesn't work there, it's because whoever did it didn't do it right. They, yeah. didn't, they didn't follow the recipe. I mean, I agree that that is a risk, and there, but I think donors and organizations are always going to want to be able to have a spectrum of activities, some of which are low risk and relatively reliable, the whole spread of different approaches. But I think there's also something else about how evidence influences policy. The people that talk about what works seem to assume that if you get the evidence for what works, that will somehow automatically translate into changed practices and changed behaviors and 
uptake of a particular intervention. Doing the randomised right. control trial I, I, you're right. is, has in itself become a silver bullet right. to the problems of development. I worked for, for the first programme which focused on evidence-based policy and development called Research and Policy and Development at the Overseas Development Institute. We looked at a whole lot of different interventions and we looked at things like participatory methods, sustainable livelihoods, large-scale interventions, policy programmes, microfinance. And what we tried to understand, well, when does evidence actually matter? When does it really count? And what we found was that the quality, the methods, the rigour, the credibility of the evidence is a factor in whether or not evidence-based policy actually happens. So quality of evidence is important, necessary but not sufficient. Networks and linkages also really matter. If I'm doing a study for you, and it's on one of your programmes and you know me and we've got a relationship of trust, I'm more able to develop a set of recommendations which you're able to adhere to and maybe listen to. But, but actually the biggest thing that influences whether or not evidence has an influence is political context. One of my experiences was in Uganda where we did research on the education system. We got the best picture of what was happening in education up to that time. It was very credible, high-quality information. And then we put it in the policy briefs, and we held workshops. We shopped it around with the political leadership of the country, and we made very little headway. People thought it was interesting, and the folks in the education ministry liked it. But in terms of getting the government to start to change its resource allocation decisions or change its personnel management practices, or change the way it was interacting with districts it wasn't happening until we changed our strategy. We took all this stuff to the press and they started publishing stories and that then started to change policy. Mm. It wasn't technical agency or a donor partner that was saying, here's some really interesting information you ought to look at. Mm. It was the public who was saying, wow, our schools aren't working. Mm. This needs to change. And it really did lead to some significant policy reforms. The reason I love that story so much is because it actually speaks to a lot of the things we've been talking about. The need to be engaged with national stakeholders. The idea that it's about the local people caring enough about the things that matter to them. I think uh, more fundamentally it's about that accountability. A lot of what we're talking about is who is accountable for development ultimately. And a lot of the conversations we can end up having where we say it's the relationship between the aid provider and the aid implementer that's the most important one. But actually that's nonsense. It's, it's that one in country where the citizens are able to hold their governments to account, where the citizens are able to call for development. Ben, thanks for a terrific conversation. It's been a real pleasure, Patrick. Thank you so much. Yeah.